I do want to thank you uh, before I read our text today for the outpouring of financial support that we had last month to our asking uh, you to help. This has been a weird year. We have never really had to pester our congregation, you, the people of Christ the King, for money. And yet uh, this year has been unusually bad. And so we uh, hope that and ask that you would give generously as best you can. We know that everyone is suffering to some extent uh, due to this past year and a half. Uh, one thing that will help us, particularly now that we're entering the summer, we're well into the summer, is to look at your budget, see how you can help, uh, particularly monthly. And again, we've rarely ever mentioned money in our church. Thank God we've, he's taken good care of us and he will continue uh, but if you can, look at your budget, see if you can help a little bit. Get on a, a regular basis. It's great to get one-time gifts, but it really helps us if we know uh, what is coming in and we can uh, then uh, move forward with our, our budgeting processes and spend accordingly. So uh, thank you all for that. I am uh, glad this will be the last Sunday that we talk about this refocus that we're going to do as a church. We're not going to change who we are and really not change what we've been doing, but we are going to refocus because we've all been apart for so long. We're going to start zeroing in on what uh, our church needs to be doing, both inside with one another and also outside in our community. We've done a great job here at Christ the King uh, with Christian education, teaching uh, robust theology and, and the Bible. Um, but we've, I think we've slipped a little bit in reaching out into our neighbors and the community. And what they're needing is not necessarily theology, at least not at first. What they need is just friendship. I met with someone yesterday that, you know, they've been isolated for the whole year and a half, and they're just desperate for friends, for connection, for uh, I shared the gospel with them, and they were interested in that too. So just think about that, the opportunities that are before us because of this really cosmic shift in our culture because of the pandemic and all the other things that have been going on. So as we emerge from this time, uh, we want to embrace the idea that the church, this is from Archbishop Templeton, I gave you this a few weeks ago, the church is the only institution that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And so the church is here still primarily because Jesus wants us to spread the word about his gospel and also spread the light of goodness and grace and peace and reunification, uh, being peacemakers, all of those things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, the church is the church only when it exists for others. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he could have raised everybody and been done with it. That would have been the end and we'd have gone on to heaven. But he chose to leave us here. He said, I'm leaving you here so that you can do the furthering of the gospel. In fact, you're going to do greater things than I did. Now, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty bold statement, but Jesus is bold, and he can make the statements he likes. So very quickly, to catch you up, we talked about, this has been four weeks, this is the last one, 
First week we talked about Pentecost, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the sign of speaking in tongues, and there's lots of controversy around that, but what I told you is what everybody agrees on is that it was at least a signal. In fact, primarily, I believe it was primarily a signal, a sign that whereas Babel, the Tower of Babel, scattered humanity and and created divisions that we've lived with for thousands of years, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the phenomenon of speaking in tongues was a sign that now we would be regathering humanity and that our common language would not be the actual English or Spanish or Arabic or Hebrew, but our common language would be the wondrous works of God understood in the language of whoever we share it with. The next week we talked about the Samaritan woman at the well. This very famous passage, I've preached on it at least twice here at Christ the King. But what I was telling you a few weeks ago is that Jesus goes in and he intentionally breaks barriers with this woman who was an outsider. And then he starts talking to her about questions of spirituality. You see, everyone has questions about metaphysics or spirituality or you know, is this all there is or is there more? And so Jesus talked to her about that. He found common ground. They both believed in Messiah. So he said, I'm him. And she, of course, was, was blown away. Uh, and then last week we talked about the reunification of humanity, what we see in Isaiah chapter 19. And Isaiah does this amazing thing. He uses... Uh, a poetic device of repetition, and he says five times, in that day, in that day, in that day. And each one of the phrases points us to a day in which he will convert the Gentiles, the historic and bitter enemies of the people of God. So you have two people in the world, according to the, the biblical worldview, is there's, there's the the people of God, the chosen people of God, and then over here there's the Gentiles, outsiders. Most of us are Gentiles. However, God not only uses in this passage, He doesn't just reach out to the Gentiles, He uses, as one commentator says, under the image of Israel's ancient and bitterest enemies, Egypt and Assyria. So what God does in this prophecy of Isaiah is I'm going to go out and I'm going to make peace with my enemies. But not just any enemies, the worst enemies, the most bitter, the most ancient enemies. I'm going to make peace with them. And so we see something about God and His judgment, the way He reaches out into people's lives. And folks, this is not a, a... an ancillary thing. This is at the heart of our faith. That judgment, listen, judgment is not punitive. God's not just out to punish people. His judgment is restorative. He's not interested in annihilating people. He's interested in redeeming people. Because that's what He did with us. Could have annihilated us. He should have annihilated me. But He saw what a great person I would become. Amen. Like Dawson said, no, that's not what it is. His 
grace, his, his judgment is not punitive. It's about restoring people. It's going back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden when they're hiding from God. He could have said, I see you. I see you. And that would have completely destroyed them at the moment if he said, I see you. But instead, he says, where are you? He knew where they were, but, the, but in that is the grace of God. Not, I see you. Where are you? He's interested in people. So here in this passage, we're going to read it. It's in your bulletin. It's, again, a very well-known passage uh, in Matthew chapter 16. And I printed it in the New, New Living uh, Translation, which is a paraphrase. But it was just very good. I've been reading my, bio, my Bible reading this year in this translation. I've read the Bible I do each year, and I have done it in every translation that I, that I have, which is a few. So now hear God's word from Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage maybe from a little bit different angle uh, than what some of you have heard before if you've been in church for any length of time. This passage represents a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Almost every biblical commentator agrees with that. And verses 13 and 14, Jesus inquires, he asks them, about the beliefs of the people, not the religious leaders, because they were hostile to Jesus, but just the common folks, people out, like, like what we're talking about in our life groups, reaching out into our neighbors, gaining some passport in their lives, letting the, you know, making friends with them, uh, and, and not trying to make them a project that we're going to convert, but just friends, be friends. And so we're going to be talking to them. And at some point, hopefully, we can get to this. What do you think of spiritual things? Or what do you think uh, of Christ? It's a turning point in his ministry. And their reply, unfortunately, although it was very respectful, oh, you're, they think you're John the Baptist. They think you're Jeremiah. They think you're a, one of the prophets. You know, All very respectful. It did not rise to the level of what Jesus wanted to get at with his disciples. Same is true uh, for us and for our culture. 
throughout the ages. So uh, Knox Chamblin, Knox Chamblin passed away a few years ago, but he was a professor of New Testament at uh, uh, RTS, my seminary in Jackson. Uh, I never had the privilege of taking classes from Dr. Chamblin, but he was famous as a New Testament scholar. And he said this, all the ascriptions of verse 14 express great respect for Jesus. Yet, this is, this is fantastic. Yet, none is an adequate response to what his ministry sets forth about his person and his work, who he is and what he does. He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely another sage, another great teacher. He claimed to be something different. The Bible says he was something different. The Father says he's something different. The Holy Spirit testified he was something different. John the Baptist testified he was something different. His signs and his miracles testified that he was something else. And so he wasn't content to leave his disciples in this interesting place of, well, you know, he's, he's a good man, a good prophet, a, a great teacher. Not enough. So we're going to look at three things this morning. I broke this down this way just because I think it's easy for us to get our head around it. There's, there's dozens of ways to look at this passage. First of all, we're going to look at some needed clarity. I think we've got to clear out some of the uh, confusion associated with this passage in particular. Secondly, we're going to look at the two questions. And then finally, we're going to talk for, for just briefly about Jesus' person and work, who he is and what he, what he does. So what I'm going to do, and you, it, please don't get confused. We're going to start with verse 20 and we're going to work our way back up. So let me, let, let's look at verse 20, first of all. This is about self-disclosure. This comes up all the time in conversations with people that don't really, uh, maybe don't read the Bible or have only heard little things or maybe they've read the Bible and they've misunderstood. But very often Jesus would, would keep his disciples and followers and people he healed and all that from sharing the fact that they had been healed and that he was the Messiah or whatever. He, he was... And the reason for this, folks, if anyone ever asks you, the reason is because Jesus reserved to himself the right of self-disclosure. He didn't just say, you know, all these things are, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. You know, it, it's like, okay, you're the, that's just a naked assertion. It means nothing. But when Jesus is out doing the work that God had called him to do, obeying and following and listening and showing compassion and reunifying, being a peacemaker, not you know, all the things that he did, as you read the narrative of Christ's life, you see embodied who he is, and he let that speak for himself and for itself. And then if the Holy Spirit chimed in, a uh, dove comes down from heaven, a voice from heaven, this is my son, all the better. But Jesus reserved that right to himself. But what about Peter? This is a bigger issue. And so listen carefully. I, I'm, I'm hoping that you're awake enough this morning. You've had some of our good coffee. This is new coffee. Really good. It's not Starbucks. Better. I could get struck by lightning right now. But it really is good coffee. It's a, a local roaster. So please uh, help us uh, enjoy that this morning. 
Let's talk about Peter and, and listen carefully. Look at 18 and 19. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. All the powers of hell will not conquer it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm, I'm going to give you a different, little bit different translation than what you see in, in this bulletin or in, in, in your Bibles because it's more accurate. Listen. Whatever you forbid on earth shall have been forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth shall have been permitted in heaven. So we need, to, we need to have some clarity about what Peter is and what Peter is not. Because it's, it's become a huge thing in Christianity today. The three branches of the three great historic branches of Christianity, two of them hold an orthodox view of who Peter is and one of them a heretical view of who Peter is. And I say that with trembling. It, it's, it's completely wrong. So now listen carefully because Protestants have done a really poor job of addressing this passage. We start to squirm and try to react to something uh, that we see that's a problem and we do it all wrong. So of course you're at Christ the King. We do everything right at our church. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm going to give I'm going to give you a good good exegesis. Take it or leave it. It's it's it is what it is. But I'm going to let Dr. Chamblin do it. So listen carefully. Long quote. I don't usually do this. Please per, please listen carefully. It's really good. By the words this rock, Jesus means listen, not himself nor his teaching. These are all things that Protestants have tried to say the rock is because we're so desperate to get away from saying it's Peter uh, because of the papacy. Jesus means not himself, nor his teaching, nor God the Father, nor Peter's confession, but Peter himself. The phrase is immediately preceded by a direct and emphatic reference to Peter. You, singular, you Peter, this rock, emphatic, it's Peter himself. The the phrase is immediately preceded by a direct and emphatic reference to Peter. As Jesus identifies himself as the builder, the rock on which he builds is most naturally understood by someone or something other than Jesus himself. The demonstrative word this, this rock, most naturally refers to Peter in verse 18. And the more remote confession, that's back if you look at the text, the the confession of 16 is more remote from from 17 and 18. In verse 16, the link between the clauses, this is a little technical, but hang with me. If you don't get it, I'm happy to explain after, uh, after church. The link between the clauses of verse 18 is made yet stronger by the play on words, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here, here's the main thing. Listen. As an apostle, Peter utters the confession of verse 16. As the confessor, he receives the designation, this rock, from Jesus. 
Moreover, while Jesus addresses Peter individually, because here's, here's the thing, folks. Every use of the word you in this passage is in the singular. I will give you, Peter. I will give you, I will make you, Peter. I will hand you, Peter, the keys. He's talking about Peter, and any, we cannot twist it to say something else. He means Peter. But the reason it's an issue is because of the misuse of this huge part of Christianity, the Roman church, who elevated Peter to a place of what they call the vicar of Christ. He becomes Christ's representative on earth, which in your Bible is untenable. You have to twist the scripture to get to that. But you also have to twist the scripture to do what many of us in the Protestant world try to do because we want to diminish uh, Peter. Jesus was talking to Peter. But listen, here's, I'm continuing to quote Dr. Chamblin. In verse 18, the second half of 18, Jesus, this is where you get it, folks. This is where it comes into your mind. You go, of course. How could we miss it? In 18b, the second part, Jesus, not Peter, dominates the passage. It is he whom Peter confessed. It is he who utters the words of verse 17 through 19. Whatever Simon is to be and to do is the effect of Jesus' authoritative declaration about him. The church belongs to Jesus, not to Peter. Jesus builds the church, not Peter. Jesus protects it from the destruction of hell, not Peter. Far from being a builder, Peter belongs to the building. He is Petros, a stone. In Aramaic it was Kephos. And there was no, you know, you'll read in some of the commentaries, oh, well, he used the masculine for Petros, his name, but then he uses the feminine. That's because that's how it was written in Greek. But when he said it in Aramaic, in the original language, it was kephas. One, only one word, not a gender of male and female, only masculine. Wow. Far from being a builder, Peter belongs to the building. He is Petros, a foundation stone in the edifice, a position he shares, listen, with the other apostles. Now, how do we know this? Because in Matthew 18, two chapters later, Jesus uses the same phrase of the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosening and all that authoritative stuff He applies it to all the apostles and he does it again in John chapter 20. So you have not only the synoptic testimony, but you have the gospel of John's testimony that the authority that was shown to Peter was to be shared by all the apostles and folks by extension to us. And so that this is a good exegesis of that passage without twisting it. Uh, and again, if you have questions, please uh, come and see me. Here's, what, here's why we need the clarity and, and why I think it's important. A lot of times as Protestants, we want to strike out and show the divisions between us and them. And sadly, all that does is hurt our witness and our effectiveness to the world. We, we, we need to find places where we can be unified. And what I just shared with you 
any Eastern Orthodox person and almost most Catholics would say, Good, I can go with you there. And if we can find that common ground, that's a good place to be. Now, if, if, it, if, the, if someone pushes it further somewhere else, then you address it. And it may need to be addressed. So here's what the clarity does and what I hope it has done for you. And that is that it gives Peter the respected place he deserves as representative and spokesman for the other apostles, which throughout the New Testament he is. There's no question. The tense that I was pointing out to you, it's a pluperfect future, I don't know. Do you remember all that stuff? Yeah, I don't remember. I had to look it up. Greek. You had to learn Greek and Hebrew, and, and, and we fool everybody by telling you that we know it. <laughs> we do know it a little bit. It's, it's a tense in Greek that says, what has already been said in heaven is going to be repeated by Peter. So Peter is going to be faithful to what's already been said. You see, the center of gravity and the authority is in heaven, not with Peter. He's not the vicar. He's not speaking ex cathedra from a throne and making proclamations that are outside the Bible. He's going to be saying what God is saying and has said all along. And that will be binding because of where it originates and who is saying it up there, not down here. We're just spokesmen. So it's, it's just fantastic. We can give Peter the, the place he deserves because the text does. It maintains, and I think it, it, it exalts the preeminence of our Savior. It shows us exactly who and what we're dealing with when we talk about Jesus. See, many of you probably have been in, I've been in lots of conversations with people, and we talk about God in the abstract. Oh, I believe in God, I believe in God, I believe in some higher power, I believe in this, I believe in that. All kinds of stuff. And you always know, you know, everybody, almost the whole planet believes in God, some kind of God. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. And that's why Jesus did this in Matthew 16 and elsewhere. In the other Gospels, he absolutely drew a line in the sand and he said, this is... This is the line in the sand. This is the hill to die on. In the, in the cone of certainty of Jesus, this is up there at the top. It's in the top of the cone. The, the other things are important, but this is really major. And there's reasons for that, and we'll, we'll talk about it. And the, the interpretation I give you does no violence to the text whatsoever. And uh, so we're not reacting. You see, if, if the Roman church had never proclaimed all this stuff about Peter, we would never have questioned. This would have been the exegesis, which is, by the way, what Knox Chamblin and many other New Testament goods, I'm talking about the best of the best scholars, New Testament scholars do, is they look at the text for its own sake. They let the text say and interpret itself, which is Reformed theology. Letting the text explain itself instead of us reading into the text our own proclivities and our own biases. We all do it, but the, the less you do it, the better. Okay? All right. Everybody good? Good. And if not, Dawson will pray for you. Okay, so there's two questions here very quickly. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Remember, we're going backwards. 
John, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets, see, everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Jesus' teaching here, apart from just asking a question, is this is a great place to start with people. Now, in our day and age, you can't just jump in, you know, knock on somebody's door, they open the door and you go, who do you think Jesus is? I mean, they're going to they're gonna slam the door in your face or maybe spray you with a bottle of disinfectant. They're not going to answer the silly. But if you make friends with people, if you have neighbors or friends, you know, you can gently... In your conversations, everybody wants to talk about their spiritual, what they think. Listen to them. Ask questions. Ask 10 or 15 questions before you ever start getting an answer. And if they say, well, I believe Jesus was a great teacher, you say, yeah, you know, me too. Tell me more about what you think. Well, I think he might have been a prophet. Yeah, what, what, why do you think he would have been a prophet? I mean, what, what, well, because he, he foretold the future. And you say, did he really foretell? Where exactly did he foretell the future? And then they're going to go, I don't know, but he did. Well, okay. Why do you think he was foretelling the future? Just agree with him, even though he rarely foretelled the future. Do you see what I'm saying? And at some point, you can get to the place where, what do you think? So is that, is that enough? What, what about the things he said about himself? See, you're still asking questions. What do you mean? Well, here, here's one of the things he said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What do you think of that? That's a scary statement, isn't it? And they will go, oh, that's the worst thing I ever heard in my life. How do you expect to get to the Father? You see where you are now? How do you expect to get to the Father? You say it gently, not like me, I'm too aggressive, but... How do you expect to get to the Father? Gently. And they will say, well, my good works. I'm a good person. I don't hurt anybody. I give a lot of money to my church. And I, you know, they'll give you all those reasons. Then you can ask another question. How do you know it's enough? Well, because I'm not as bad as that guy or this guy or this woman or that woman or this thing. Oh, what makes you think that you're better than them? Do you really know everything about them? You see, there's no end to the conversation you can have if you do it. As Peter later said in one of his epistles with, gen- with gentleness and respect. So the questions are themselves important. Who do you think Jesus is? Then he asked this, I, I don't even know how to phrase it, this unbelievable question that really is the question. The question. Who do you say that I am? The importance of the question cannot be overstated. It's a life and death question. It's not merely God in the abstract, but Jesus Christ because, and I will say this with all the kindness I can, you cannot know God or anything about God other than maybe He created and, you know, that that kind of stuff. You can't know him without knowing Jesus. It's impossible. So the Old Testament people knew God for God himself. He revealed himself a particular way in the Old Testament. 
in signs and burning bushes and in the art of the temple and in music and in the Psalter and in, in the prophecies that were laid out. He was revealing himself to the people directly. But what was behind all of that? What was in the windshield of every single one of these promises, these prophecies, these characteristics of God being holy, holy, holy? What was, what was the ultimate end of that? And it is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus. See, everything God said in the Old Testament always had Jesus in view as the ultimate fulfillment of everything. Think about that for a moment, folks. That's how God revealed himself in the Old Testament as Jesus, was through all these signs and these these figures and things we look at, prophecies. Every one of them had him fully in view. So the Old Testament people experienced Jesus as much as we do, only in a shadow, kind of behind a veil, sort of like behind a curtain that they could not get behind. Temple, curtain, veil, you see? The symbolism. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? It was torn. Now, the Apostle Paul said, now we don't see darkly as through a glass. We see Him as He is. God the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He so perfectly represents the Father that we call Him Son of God. He's a spitting image of His Dad. It's so cool that I don't even know how to say it. Isn't that cool? Yeah? Amen. Thank you. We, we, the reason we want uh, some feedback is because we want to know that this is getting down into your heart. We're too far away from you to see the tears flowing from your eyes when we speak. <laughs> Kidding. All right, so finally let's talk about his person and work because this is really what Jesus was getting to and what... Knox Chamblin pointed out that the, the, the acclamation to Jesus, oh, you're a great man, you're a great prophet, is nothing but an insult at, at one level. Because really, <laughs> that's not what he said about himself. Who do you say I am? Peter says, I think you're Christ Messiah, son of the living God. That puts him in a whole other <laughs> place. And Jesus affirmed that. You are Peter. Upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about his person and work. First of all, very quickly, is part of the person and work of Jesus is what I told you last week we call the divine initiative. In other words, God is active right now in this room by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is working on our hearts and our souls. And for those of you that are believers, he's He's moving you closer to Christ. For those of you that may have questions, you're not sure, He's bringing Christ into your vision, into what you see. And so the divine initiative is what we call election, predestination. This 
scary word that we use in theology. But election should not be scary. Divine initiative should not be scary. It should not be scary to talk about predestination because, folks, it is the only ground that you have of assurance. If that's not the ground of your assurance, God reaching into your life and getting you and bringing in you in, then what is it? It's you holding on to Him as, well, hopefully as strong as you can. God forbid. What happened if you left go? He holds you. He doesn't let you go. Don't be afraid of it, but let's teach it for the truth that it is. Charles Spurgeon says it, said this, and I, I've shared this quote with you many times. It won't hurt to hear it again. I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen Him. And He must have chosen me before I was born or else He never would have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me because I never could find a reason in myself why he should have placed his special love on me. So the scripture said, even in this place, Jesus said, you are blessed. Peter says, you are Messiah. And Jesus answers him, you are blessed because the Father revealed this to you. you would, a man could not have done You didn't learn this from anybody. You can't learn it from anybody. You can't. You're dead in your sins and trespasses, Paul said. You can't raise yourself from the dead. You've got to have someone else raise you from the dead. How would you do it? Can't be done. So this tells us that God in his, in his most intimate place with His Son, revealing His Son to us, is because He loves us and takes all the, all the risk involved in bringing you into His life. With all our junk and all our shame and our guilt and our filthy rags and all the rest of it. He doesn't tell you, go get cleaned up and then come to me. He says, come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come learn of me. I'm gentle. I'm meek. Come over here. Share my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because you get in this yoke and he carries the load. Oh, folks, if we knew this and we lived this way, people would see a beautiful Jesus. A Jesus that they want. Right now, America, you know, our culture, Jesus is not that pretty. He's a politician. And he's dressed in some political party's colors and everybody claims him as their own. And he will not be had by anyone. Okay. So his confession of Jesus brings us to why uh, it's important to answer in this way that Peter did. I'll tell you a little story and then we'll quit. 
when, uh, when I was growing up, my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom and my aunt's mom, uh, was uh, an extraordinary person, and she had all the family. We were a big, like the big fat Greek wedding movie. We were the big fat Lebanese family, and we'd get together constantly, and the more people didn't matter. She'd have 60 people in her house, no problem. She'd cook for everybody. And her house became the center of the universe. And so as we were growing up as kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and all my, that home was the center of the universe. And one day my brother, who's sitting by my brother David, says, you know, we've been calling her house the center of the center of the center of the universe, but it's really not her house. It's her kitchen. That's the center of the center of the universe because that's where we would all congregate was in this small little kitchen, 60 people. You know, she had other rooms in the house, but we, could, we wanted to be near her close as we could get because of who she was and what she did. Jesus Christ is the center of the center of our universe. He's our life. Peter's confession Listen carefully, folks. Peter's confession isn't what makes it significant. What makes it significant is who Peter's confessing. You see, you can believe and confess that the moon is made out of cheese. That doesn't mean anything. But if you get in a spaceship and you go there and it's really cheese, hey, then, it, then your statement means something. And when Jesus says the things he says about himself and puts himself in this unique place of humanity where he has no peer, no equal, he is Savior, he is Lord, he is Christ, he is Messiah. Then our faith, listen folks, our faith, our confession, our way of life all has meaning. It gives you meaning. It gives our efforts meaning. It has substance. We can say to the mountain, be removed. It will be removed. Not literally. These are figures of speech to show you that He is in all the way with you and with me completely. And we all the way in with Him. And our, our role is to bring this great message to the world in two ways, word and deed. And that's not 50%, but both, 100%, 100%. Not only what we say, but how we act, how we live. Our personal holiness that we derive directly from our Savior. And holiness is not primarily about behavior. It's more about your identity, being set apart, who you are. Here's the quote I referred to last week, and I always take, if I can ever get a chance to share these quotes from Horatius uh, Bonar from uh, The Everlasting Righteousness, I will. If you want a copy of The Everlasting Righteousness, I will give you one. And if you don't want me to give you one, then you can look it up online. It's a PDF, public domain. Listen to this. We'll finish with this. To be entitled to use another's name when my name is so worthless, uh, 
to be allowed to wear another's raiment because my own is torn and filthy, to appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin-bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and persons. I am now represented by Him now he appears in the presence of, of my father of God his father for me all that makes him precious listen these are stunning words all that makes him precious and dear to the father has been transferred to me his excellency his glory are seen as if they were mine, and I receive the love, the fellowship, the glory, as if I had earned it all myself. So entirely, listen, so entirely am I one with the sin-bearer that God There's never been a statement like this, folks. Listen. That God treats me not merely as if I had done nothing wrong or evil, but as if I had done all the good (laughs) which I have not done, but which my substitute has done For me. In one sense, I'm still a poor sinner. Under wrath. But in another, I am altogether counted righteous. And so, I shall be forevermore. Because the perfect one in whose perfection I appear before God. Will you trust Him, this one? I pray you will. Father, uh, we love you and we thank you. We know that this, what we see here, what we hear in these words, are the very heart of our faith. Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, the suffering servant for us, as us, on the cross, in the resurrection, us in Him, He in us. We don't know how to thank You, Father. But as we come to Your table, we ask You to feed us in our hearts by faith. We truly do. In Jesus' name, amen.